You are our God and our Redeemer, the one who hears us, who is with us, who loves us. God, may we rest um, in the knowledge of that truth this morning. Lord, I pray that as we are here, as we worship, as we proclaim your word um, and receive it, Lord, that you um, would build in us a desire to follow your commands, that we would love you with our whole being, that we would love those around us as ourselves. God, we pray that your spirit um, would lead us in how to do that would encourage us and sustain us through your presence, Lord. God, I pray for the, pieces, the places in our world that need your peace. May you bring your peacemakers there. I pray for the places in our world that need um, your tender love and mercy, for those places in our own lives that need that. May you bring that there as well, Lord. God, we ask um, that you would do a mighty thing in us this morning, that you would um, reveal yourself to us in maybe a new way, God, and draw us closer together as your people who go out into the world in the midst of our daily lives, um, that we might be um, your salt and light on this earth, Lord. Do that in us this morning, Father. We uh, thank you for your provision of safe travels to get here this morning. We pray that you would provide that for us as we leave and go on throughout our day. Um, We pray for our communities and um, those who are receiving some severe weather this morning. We pray for your safety and protection to be upon them. Um, God, may you meet the needs that arise um, because of these these storms, Lord. Um, And... Maybe show us how we can enter in to help meet those needs as well, Father. Uh, But we trust you to be with us and to provide for us for everything that we might have need of. So God, we um, come before you with all the things upon our hearts, everything that we bring in from this week, um, and we lay it at your feet. Um, And we we hand that over to you, Lord. Um, May you um, refresh our souls in this space as we um, listen to Eugene in a bit. May you give him your words to speak, Lord. We love you, Father. Um, We praise you for being a good God. And it's in your holy name that we pray. Amen. Well, in preparation for Eugene's sermon in just a moment, we're going to be reading from Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will move from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. Eugene, come and share with us. I will sprinkle clean water on you. It seems like we've got a little bit of that literally this morning. (laughs) I'd like to begin our time in the Word with a practice that has helped me in recent months. Many of the women at the retreat 
came home with different practices that they could employ in their walk with God um, to help them. And I'd just like to offer you all something that has helped me. And so if you are comfortable doing so, if you feel comfortable doing so, no pressure, I'd just like to invite you to lay your hand on your heart and to close your eyes, take a deep breath, and say to yourself, another lives in me. And sink into that truth. Let's do that one more time, just becoming aware of the Holy Spirit in our hearts. Another lives in me. Holy Spirit, we welcome you to speak to us from your word this morning. Amen. After last week's message on the PBCC family value of discipleship through relationships, some of you may be wondering, who disciples Eugene? Who disciples Eugene? And it would only be fair to wonder. I couldn't ask you to seek out discipleship if I was unwilling to do so myself. And so I'm happy to tell you about the people who have loved me and continue to love me into being. Among the many who helped disciple me are Pastor John and Pastor Xian Huang. They have been my primary disciplers since I met them in 2002. I also have a spiritual director, Russ Ikeda, who has met with me once a month since 2020. And since last fall, every two weeks, I meet with a program supervisor, Angela Rose, and three other members of a process group. These seven individuals are directly involved in the shaping and forming of who I am, but they really aren't the only people I rely on. My parents and my mother-in-law are my most faithful prayer supporters. My sister-in-law has both inspired and encouraged me through some of my darkest times. My sister takes me into parts of my heart and my past that I wouldn't look into without her. And of course, my friends in ministry, my friends outside of ministry, and this body, both generally and specifically PBCC, shape and form me through the many interactions we have that may seem small to others but mean so much to me. As many of you also know, each of us pastors has an elder that comes alongside them to be a co-laborer in the work of ministry. Um, I don't know if I'm supposed to tell you who mine is, but trust that I have one. Oh, and I, I can't forget, of course, my, my coworkers themselves on staff. In many ways, they have journeyed with Christ longer and farther and deeper than I have, and they show me every week I say without exaggeration, they show me every week, perhaps without even realizing it, what my next steps with Jesus could look like. And last, but certainly not least, my wife, Hedin, and my boys, William and Theo. Hedin disciples me in ways no one else can. Her combination of gentleness and fearless resolve, of principled compassion and confidence in God is something that I hope to possess when I grow up. <laughs> and I could say the same about William's sincere love for goodness and Theo's wildfire joy over the sweetness of living. All these people in my life have loved and continue to love me into being. Whether they intend to or not, they point me to God just like John the Baptist Behold, the Lamb of God. They help me behold Jesus and follow him. And in so doing, 
they become instruments of the one who ultimately disciples me, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one at work in every phone call, in every email, in every conversation, in every text message, in every interaction with these people in my life. The Holy Spirit is the one using them to shape and mold and love me into being. And if you are a disciple of Jesus Christ, and this is as true for you as it is for me, another lives in you. And he is using all things to shape and mold and love you into conformity to Jesus Christ. But this shaping and this molding and this discipling isn't automatic, brothers and sisters. No, the work of the Holy Spirit requires our participation in what he is doing. He does not need us to earn or to prove or to bring anything but he does want us to come to his table and be present to what he is doing in us and saying to us. I think of it like dinner time at our house. When Hetty and I finish making dinner, we tell the boys to stop what they're doing and to come to the dinner table. We don't eat until they arrive. Now, did they earn the right to eat by coming to the table? Is dinner payment for the effort they expended coming to the table? No, of course not. It's just that we don't eat dinner anywhere else in the house. In order to receive the dinner that's been freely prepared for them, they need to come to where it may be eaten. In the same way, the Holy Spirit wants us to come to him, to be present to him, to participate as willing recipients of what he is doing and saying to us attending to the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, following his lead into Christ-likeness is how I understand the third of our PBCC family values, life in the Spirit through grace. And while he isn't mentioned explicitly in our text, as the wind is visible by its effects, so the Holy Spirit may be seen at work in the picture of the early church Luke presents to us in Acts chapter 2, verses 43 to 45. Last Sunday, we identified these verses as the center of a chiasm spanning verses 41 to 47. As the center of the chiasm, it is arguably the most important part of the passage. So what are these three verses about? Well, verse 43 is clearly about the manifestation of the Holy Spirit among the apostles after Pentecost. Verse 43 reads, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. Luke informs us that the apostles performed many wonders and signs, a fitting summary for the rest of the book of Acts. Across the rest of its chapters, we witness healings, exorcisms, prison escapes, deliverances, and even the dead being raised back to life. The miracles performed by the apostles confirmed their authority and it supported their message. And everyone was filled with awe at the manifestation of the Holy Spirit. This response harkens back to the beginning of the chapter when devout Jews from every nation on the earth first encountered the apostles after they received the promised Holy Spirit. Going back to verse 1, when the day of Pentecost came, the apostles were all together in one place. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. 
When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. The apostle Peter explained to the crowd that what they were witnessing was a manifestation of the promised Holy Spirit, which they had received through faith in Jesus Christ. And it was by this same Holy Spirit that the apostles continued performing many wonders and signs. The apostles were not interested, however, in gatekeeping access to the Holy Spirit. Rather, on the day of Pentecost, Peter invited the crowd to receive the Holy Spirit for themselves. Verse 38, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Notice that the final word in Peter's gospel presentation is the promise that if the crowd repented and was baptized, they would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Peter's invitation did not stop at the forgiveness of sins. We'll come back to this a little bit later. Luke tells us that many people in the crowd accepted Peter and the apostles' invitation that day. Some 3,000 people repented and were baptized. And we can safely assume that these people also received the promised Holy Spirit. So the question is, how did the Holy Spirit manifest among these early believers? Verse 44, all the believers were together and had everything in common. Whereas the apostles' manifestation of the Holy Spirit included miracles, the early believers' manifestation of the Holy Spirit was characterized primarily by sharing what they had. We saw last Sunday that the early believers were devoted to fellowship, devoted to koinonia, a Greek word which at its core is about sharing. As people who shared in the one goal of Christlikeness and who shared in the gift of the one spirit, the early believers shared everything else as well. Luke repeats this observation in verse 45. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Now consider the intentionality reflected in this verse. In order to have everything in common, the early believers had to take inventory of their property and possessions, what they had in their houses and to their names. Parcels of land, pieces of furniture, clothing, valuables, stores of foodstuffs, heirlooms, animals. And having taken inventory, they took the practical steps necessary to sell whatever they felt they could part with. Then they considered one another's needs, took a tally, and used the proceeds from the sale of their belongings to help one another. Now anyone who has ever sold belongings on the internet, or at a thrift store, or out of their own garage, they know, <laughs> they know this takes intention, and effort, and motivation. And the early believers exercised all three so that they could give to anyone who had need. Luke repeats this observation for a third time in Acts chapter four, verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Luke gives us a peek into the early believers' mindset. They had disavowed themselves of the concept of ownership. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own. 
There was no such thing as possession or ownership in the early believers' gospel-shaped, Holy Spirit-formed worldview. Luke goes on, verse 33, with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, again referring to their wonders and signs. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. Why did the Holy Spirit manifest among the early believers in this way? The answer to this question lies in the Old Testament prophecies explaining what the promised Holy Spirit would one day do. Let's take a look at two of them. Roughly six and a half centuries before the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on Pentecost, the prophet Jeremiah delivered an oracle concerning God's plan to redeem his people. Why did they need redeeming? Well, by Jeremiah's day, God's people had repeatedly broken their covenant with him for hundreds of years, violating the terms of their relationship set under Moses. But God promised that one day things would be different. Jeremiah 31. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Centuries of Israel and Judah's covenant unfaithfulness, despite God's covenant faithfulness, had revealed the true condition of the human heart. And that is that no matter how much blessing humans experience, no matter how much wealth, no matter how much wealth or health, protection, victory, education, opportunity, or even miracles, no matter how much of these things they receive, humans will not trust God and keep covenant with him. Our hearts are undeniably, fundamentally, inescapably resistant to God. There's something desperately wrong with the human condition, with the human heart that keeps us from loving, trusting, and obeying God, and only God can repair it. So, God promised to establish a new covenant with his people. In this new covenant, God would not merely deliver his laws, desires, and heart to his people on tablets of stone or scrolls of parchment. No, under the new covenant, God promised, I will put my law in their minds, and write it on their hearts. I will incorporate it into who they are. And the result would be a people who, forgiven of their sin, would truly live as if they were God's people. But how would God put his law in their minds and write it on their hearts? Well, the prophet Ezekiel had the answer. Through him, God declared, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. 
Ezekiel echoed Jeremiah's prophecy that God would forgive the sins of his people. But what would the forgiveness of sins accomplish? The forgiveness of sins makes possible the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Their forgiveness means that God can draw near to his people and even indwell their hearts without destroying them. And once the Holy Spirit takes residence in the human heart, he can transform it from the inside out. I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. This is why Peter's gospel did not end with the forgiveness of sins. What Jesus did for God's people at the cost of his life was make possible the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. He died so that we might be forgiven so that we might be filled with the Holy Spirit who writes God's law on our hearts. So you see, brothers and sisters, the gospel is not just that we are forgiven through Jesus. It is also that we can be changed through the Holy Spirit. The gospel is not just that we are accepted as we are. It is also that we can become who we were meant to be. The gospel is not just that we have been freed from the curse of the law. It is also that we can have the law written on our hearts where it belongs so that we may keep it in love for and trust in and obedience to God. When the early believers received the apostles' testimony, they repented and were baptized and they received the Holy Spirit. And because they were cleansed of their sin, the Holy Spirit could begin writing God's law on their hearts so that they actually lived out the heart of the law. So what was God's law regarding property? Well, we find two important property laws in the one book that we've left out of our preaching at PBCC, Leviticus. <laughs> In the book of Leviticus, which by the way is the central book of the five books of Moses, and therefore the central book of the law, the central book of the old covenant, the heart of the law, in the heart of the law, we find this command. Chapter 19, verse nine. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. One of my professors in seminary would tell his students, in life there are some things that are worth doing but not doing well. God commanded his people to do a sloppy job reaping their harvest. <laughs> do not reap to the very edges of your field, just leave them. Do not go over your vineyard a second time. Once, once is enough. If something fell, just leave it on the ground. There's no five-second rule. It's just forever there. <laughs> it was to be left on the ground. Gleanings were to be left right where they were. Why? Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, God commanded. The edge of the fields, the gleanings, the fallen grapes, they were all to be left for those in need, for those who had fallen on our hard times, whether or not it was their own fault. God supported this command with a simple reminder, I am the Lord your God. Simple as it is, this sentence is pregnant with meaning. I am the Lord your God. I am the Lord, the creator of all things and the Lord of all reality, the ruler of all existence. I have the power to supply you with all that you need. And I am your God. I am your God. 
I am for you and not against you. I am the one who brought you up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who subdued nations before you and settled you into this good land. I am willing and I am able to meet your needs. I have met your needs and I will continue to do so. Thus, the command implied a promise, even if you leave the edges of your field and the gleanings unharvested, even if you don't go over your vineyard a second time, even if you leave what's fallen on the ground, I will give you enough. There will be enough for you, even if you don't maximize for yourself. So give to the poor. God goes even further at the end of Leviticus. This is my favorite command in the Old Testament. Consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property. What's going on here? Well, just as the people of God were commanded to observe a weekly Sabbath, they were to rest from work every seventh day, So they were to observe a Sabbath year. Every seven years, they were not to farm any of their land for the entire year. Just not work for a whole year. And they, not only that, but every seven Sabbath years, there was to be an additional year of no farming, the 50th year. They called this the year of Jubilee. But here's where it gets really crazy. In the year of Jubilee, everyone was to return to their ancestral lands, to the territories their families had originally received from God when Israel first entered the land of Canaan. Any land that had been purchased since the previous year of Jubilee would be returned to its original owner for free. Every slave would be set free. Every debt would be erased. Every 50 years, Virtually all socioeconomic change, either up or down, would be totally reset. Why? The Lord says, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Let that sink in for a moment. There were no native Israelites there were no native people of God. The land is mine and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Not foreigners and strangers to God, to be clear. No, God's people were his children. But they were foreigners and strangers to the land in the sense that it did not belong to them. It belonged to God. Everything his people enjoyed, therefore, had been given to them, not earned by them. God wanted them to never forget this fact, and so he put a reminder in their calendars that would go off every generation and wake them up out of the daydream or the nightmare of ownership so that they could be free to share what they had with one another. The year of Jubilee was a reminder to God's people to live in grace. Remembering the grace they had received from God, they were to show grace to one another. Remembering the unmerited favor God had shown them and delivering them from Egypt and providing for them throughout the wilderness and settling them into the promised land, God's people were to show favor to one another whether or not they merited that favor. 
Whether or not they earned or deserved that favor, God's people were to wake up from the delusion of ownership and possession and to live in God's grace. And in this way, they would fulfill another command in the book of Leviticus, one that Jesus would later call the counterpart to the greatest commandment, Leviticus 19.18. Love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. But the people of Israel and Judah did not keep God's law. They did not remember his grace to them, so they did not show grace to one another. Instead, the people of Israel and Judah lived by the competitive, meritocratic, survivalistic, scarcity mindset of this world. They denied the givenness of all things and broke their covenant with God. But under the new covenant and by the blood of Jesus, the early believers received the promised Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit wrote God's laws and desires and will and heart on their hearts and they started living in and by and through grace and the givenness of all things. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. Brothers and sisters, this is the picture Luke presents to us of the new covenant people of God. This is what it looked like for them to live their lives with the Holy Spirit, showing grace to one another because of the grace shown to them. This is the power manifested among them because of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the power to change and transform and become who they were always meant to be, a people brought to life in the Spirit through grace. And brothers and sisters, as another one of my seminary professors would say, this is the greatest miracle this side of the second coming of Jesus Christ. The miracle of the changed human heart from selfishness and self-centeredness and the fear of death and tomorrow to unflinching generosity towards those who don't deserve it. Brothers and sisters, what does it look like for us to live in the spirit through grace? What would it look like for us to live as people of the new covenant with the laws and desires and will and heart of God written in our minds and on our hearts? What would it sound like for us to have the, given of, the givenness of all things engraved into our hearts? What would it smell like for us to live in and by and through grace? What would it feel like for us to share the grace we've been given with one another without any concern for whether or not anyone deserved it? Because we didn't. But Eugene, what are you trying to say here? Does life in the spirit through grace mean we should start a Christian commune? Peninsula Bible Church Cupertino Commune would add just one more C to our name. <laughs> but no, I don't believe that's what God is calling us to do today. It made sense for the early church. Almost all the early believers lived in the same city, Jerusalem, at least for a time. And almost all of them were quite poor. And almost all of them were ostracized by their families and communities of origin for having put their faith in this Jesus. And so it made sense for the Holy Spirit to lead the early believers to share their property and possessions in the way they did. 
And years after the birth of the church, after the apostles had brought the gospel to other parts of the Roman Empire, where it was no longer possible or feasible for them to do this in this way, still, when the Christians in Judea heard new, hit new lows of poverty, it made sense for the Holy Spirit to lead the early believers across the empire to again sell their possessions and property and to take up a collection for those in need. You can read about that in the New Testament. And again, though on a more personal level, when the apostle Paul was under house arrest and couldn't secure food for himself, it made sense for the Holy Spirit to lead the Philippian church, arguably the poorest church in the first century, to give even beyond their means in order to supply Paul with what he needed. You see, brothers and sisters, life in the spirit through grace isn't about Christian socialism or Christian communism. It's about following the Holy Spirit as he empowers us to keep the heart of the law, loving our neighbors as ourselves. It's about allowing the Holy Spirit to gently, graciously, but firmly assert his ownership over us and over all that we seemingly possess, over all that we seemingly own, and to direct us in all our seeming property however he wants, in whatever way love for others presently requires. But that can be a frightening thought, can't it? It is for me, and perhaps you'll be surprised to hear it this way, but it was for Jesus as well, whom the Spirit led into the wilderness to fast and into the garden of Gethsemane to die, to give up all he had, including his very life, to meet the needs of those who had not earned or merited or deserved his love. But by the Holy Spirit, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And from there, he calls us. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will find it. And alongside the Lord Jesus Christ, I hear God, our Heavenly Father, encouraging us, love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of your sin, who delivered you from the fear of death, who liberated you from the delusion of worldly wealth, who has given you all things, and I will never fail to give you all you need. And alongside them, I hear the Holy Spirit telling us that he lives in us, that he is always with us, that he will help us, come alongside us, comfort us, and remind us of who we truly are, that we also are God's beloved, and that there will be enough for us when we graciously give to others. Brothers and sisters, do you hear the Holy Spirit speaking to you today? Do you hear him reminding you of the givenness of all things? Do you feel him writing the truth on your heart, the truth of who you are in Christ, the truth of what you have in Christ? Do you feel him changing the way you see what you have here in this life? Brothers and sisters, how is the Holy Spirit leading you? Is he asking you to share with someone in need? If so, then what? Your resources, your time, your energy, your prayers, your service, your silence, 
your forgiveness? What has God graced you with that you might offer to others in the same grace? And how do we even know? How do we even know we're hearing from the Holy Spirit? Well, we could preach a whole other sermon on this, probably like 10, but let me offer just a place to start. We listen to the Holy Spirit by attending to him in our own needs. What do I mean by that? The Holy Spirit speaks to us in our own needs. He speaks to us when we face and feel our needs. He speaks to us in other places and at other times as well, to be sure, but certainly when we come to his table and share with him our needs. He has something to say about them. But many times, instead of facing our needs and meeting the Holy Spirit in them, we suppress our needs and attempt to soothe the pain they cause. It seems that most people today, seems to me that most people today spend much of their lives managing crises and soothing themselves after. For many, getting through the day is like escaping a series of rolling boulders. Think about Indiana Jones. By evening, they are spent and exhausted and covered in the dust of the day. Their own needs are screaming for attention, but all they have energy for is soothing themselves with distractions that distance them from the ache that they feel. Whether it's entertainment, whether it's social media, whether it's even doom scrolling, online shopping, after hours work, substances, food and drink, pornography, really anything else, if it reliably provides the escape or the distraction that we seek, it can become an addictive attachment. And the problem with attachments, well, among the many, but the biggest problem with attachments is that they rob us of our chance to deepen our intimacy with the Holy Spirit and to actually hear from him. By evading our pain and suppressing our needs, we actually miss out on one of the best places we have to encounter the Holy Spirit and hear from him the truth we need to not only be soothed, but to be healed. But when we embrace our needs, when we recognize our own needs and enter that place of vulnerability, the Holy Spirit speaks to us the truth of who we are in Christ. He reminds us of who we belong to and where we are headed. And these truths heal the ache that we feel and quiet our inner turmoil and cacophony until we can hear the still, small voice of the Holy Spirit. When we follow Jesus into the garden of Gethsemane, into the garden of our vulnerability, the Holy Spirit meets us there. He ministers to us. And liberated from the fear of our own needs, liberated from the pain of our own needs, we gain the ability to discern where the Holy Spirit is leading us. We gain the ability to discern what he is writing on our hearts and saying to us. We find the courage to say back to him, you are all I need, so what would you have me do? What would you have me share of myself as Christ graciously shared himself with me? Meeting the needs of others does not ignore our own needs. Rather, it comes out as the fruit of engaging with God in our needs, of attending to his truth in the place of our neediness. The incredible thing is that he can turn that into a place of generosity and grace. 
brothers and sisters, under the new covenant, because of the blood of Christ, another lives within us. And he delights to do so. He delights to speak to us and to write his law on our hearts. So let us meet him then at the table of communion. I'd like to call the praise team back to the platform. And if you feel comfortable doing so, I'd like to invite you to once again lay your hand on your heart and speak the truth to yourself. Another lives in me. Know it to be true. And allow that holy other, the Holy Spirit, to remind you of who you are and what you have. And ask him, what does love require today? How might I keep the law to love my neighbor as myself? But receive now this word of benediction. As you go from this place, may God empower you by the Holy Spirit to know your needs met and satisfied in all that he is for you in Christ. May he empower you to be transformed as he writes the law of God on your hearts, leading you to love your neighbor as yourself. May God bless you. Be well.